source of true delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 through 20. You can follow along in the blue Bible in the pew on page 448 and on page 835. Psalms 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And from Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, first, if you'll take out the sheet that at least one of family is supposed to have, <clears throat> cultivating a heart for God's purpose in the world. <clears throat> now, not to say you have to, but I put a lot of time in. <laughs> I put a lot of time into this. I so don't throw it away. Okay, <clears throat> um, but what I'm what I'm really hoping to do. <clears throat> And uh, this, this really is the primary part of the prayer in action. I'm going to talk about our royalty as believers to help encourage you uh, to take up action and prayer. But this, these sheets represent an effort to equip you for years to come, okay? Um, and to start off with, the first part is about prayer and I think what is so important for us in our prayers for the world is that we 
exalt God, that, that it is a doxological prayer for the Word, that we constantly enter into, number one, His sovereignty over the world. What use is there to pray? pray. How, how confidently will we pray if we are not recognizing His greatness? And so, you see, I've, I've given you these passages. I, I, I type them out because it is hard just to thumb through Scripture. However, at the bottom page 2, there's some longer sections, and I hope you won't ignore these because there's some marvelous things. Uh, Hannah's song, uh, the Hezekiah's prayer, Jehoshaphat's prayer, marvelous prayers that exalt the sovereignty of God in very difficult situations. Uh, it's wonderful to memorize uh, parts of these prayers or the whole of these prayers, but um, those passages at the bottom are, are very important. But uh, to work through these passages, to meditate on them, to pray through them, to exalt God with these precious uh, words of praise. And then the next section talks about God's purpose in the world. And as you read these, they begin to build on one another and you begin to realize this is what He is about to win this whole world, to extend the gospel to the whole earth for all the peoples to come to him. It, it just, it's just like a, a, a way that just builds and builds and builds as you read through these passages. And again, there's some other longer ones toward the end uh, of this section. But I have the word expect uh, because as we exalt him, Already there should be some expectation, but then to expect that God will do great things in the earth. If we don't expect and pray to that end, think of all the millions of Christians uh, just coming again and again to God, constantly asking Him, based on His promises, based on what He says He will do, to do great things in the earth. And along those lines, the next section on page 4 at the bottom is the addresses that go out to all the world in the Psalms. Uh, To address the world to come, to glorify Him, to honor Him. So those two sections kind of go together, right? Of the promises and prayers of what God will do, and then the call to the world to engage and to glorify His his great name. Then on page 6, you'll see a little section on creation that's self-explanatory, and then a little section on uh, enjoying God in praise. And as I say here, every one of these passages, and I've given you a little teaser by because I just didn't have room to, to type them all out, but hopefully with the teaser, uh, it's... Every one of these is a statement of the psalmist of, I will, I will praise you, I will glorify you, I will trust you. It's so personal to get inside the heads of these psalmists and how they use this, I will. They dedicated themselves to engage with God and engage in His purposes and in His glory. And then with uh, both exalt, uh, expect, and enjoy uh, to read through the gospel narratives or several things in the gospels that talk about how the the whole of the Gentiles are going to hear the word and, and it's going to be taken to them. And then in Acts, in the bottom of seven, how the gospel bursts forth. Uh, in, and that I just try to trace through and help you read through Acts to see all the marvelous ways in which the gospel went forth. 
Uh, on page 9, Paul's prayers for new and established churches. Another help, hopefully. And then, yeah, I hate it that it's just a list. And I know that's, that looks so forbidding. I at least tried to break them out a little bit, you know, because we big, big one chunk just think, well, I'm throwing that away. I'm just not going to do it. <clears throat> but all of these passages, hopefully just looking at this, realizing all of these passages in some way talk about proclaiming the gospel, living out the gospel, suffering for the gospel. I think it, there's a little bit there, right, in the New Testament about this gospel thing going out uh, everywhere. <clears throat> and then on the back... Uh, this is the action part and just many different things that you can do. And let me touch on one because it involves what's in the bulletin. One, two, three, four down. Pick one of our missionaries, get their newsletter, read it, pray, pray faithfully for them, find out their needs, send a care package, etc. Turn to page 17 in your bulletin. You will find a list of both missionaries and RUF guys. And girl, Kelly, Lursh is in here as well. <clears throat> now, this is not one of those deals where you say, oh, I'll just pray for all of them. Check, 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 check. And then you won't pray for any of them, you know. But pick one person, maybe one missionary, one RUF person. <clears throat> and if it's not Keith, he's really going to be upset. Uh, or right, but <clears throat> but um, and and for most, I would say for most of the congregation, many of you, you just don't know any of the missionaries that well. You kind of know their name, but to really be involved, to really, really read their newsletter, pray what they ask you to pray for, think about them often, that would be a step, wouldn't it? Just a step. That's one of the many things. Um, the next one, I, I said it in Sunday school. Some people have already gotten one. I'll say it again. Get a copy of Operation World. There's probably not a better tool. There's not a better tool to help you become a world Christian in terms of prayer, praying for the real needs of the world and what's going on. But that's all I'm going to say about that. This is just a take-home assignment, you know, not just for this week, but for a long, long time, that hopefully this can equip you and uh, help you uh, pray and act on behalf uh, of the gospel. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> in our remaining time, <clears throat> excuse me, I'd like to talk primarily about our royalty as those made in the image of God, <clears throat> our original a task given to us by God and how that looks today as we are to be a part of God's ongoing work of bringing the whole of creation to its final Sabbath to into the new creation. Uh, only, of course, this can be done by God himself, but how are we to play into this? What is our role in this regard? <clears throat> Now, three things I want to mention about our being made in God's image. One is that we are a whole. That is, we're soul and body. And this has implications for our relationship with God. It has implications for our relationship with creation. Secondly, <clears throat> image, image of God 
primarily has, at least centrally has, a relational covenantal aspect. That is, that we are image of God in order to commune with Him. And this relational covenantal aspect of our being made in the image of God makes us outward-focused creatures, or that we should be outward-focused creatures. And then the third word is royal. So whole, relational, royal. Now, our wholeness as body, soul, individuals. In Platonism, in Greek thinking, embodiment is a curse. And the, the goal of life is finally to get out of this prison house, this dungeon of a body, so that we are free to be just pure spirit. <clears throat> and in much Eastern thought, the idea is that we will finally return into the one spirit that makes up everything, and we will dissolve and be in nirvana. <clears throat> Embodiment is a curse. In Christianity, in biblical thinking, disembodiment is a curse. Okay? Disembodiment is a curse. When you die and your soul is separated from your body and your body goes to the grave and your soul goes to Jesus, it's good to be with Jesus. But as we've said before, that's just a holding place, so to speak. It's the intermediate states, theologians call it. It's not the final state. It's not what we're waiting for. We're waiting for resurrection, the restoration of body and soul, to be one again. Because disembodiment is a curse. So we are not saved from our bodies, as Eastern thinking has it, but we're saved with our bodies through resurrection. And so Christianity has the most noble view, most glorious view of the body, and therefore of creation. Because we believe creation is good. It wasn't an accident and a bad, evil thing done by this low-ranking God one time who never should have made it. That was what the Gnostics thought, okay? But no, it is a good thing made by a good God. So that you don't just have a body as it's like your appendage and it's the, the little shell where the real you is. You are a body. It defines you. You are body. And that's how glorious body is. It's the real you. You've heard me say it before about the, you know, southern uh, preacher who says, Bill is not here anymore. Bill's with the Lord, you know. And you want to correct him, right? You want to say, well, okay, yeah, Bill is with the Lord, but that's Bill. It's not good that that's Bill. That's got to be changed. That's got to be raised up because that's Bill. That's got to be saved. So the final adoption is when our bodies are restored. So Paul says in Romans 8, he says, we await our adoption. I thought we were already adopted. Not fully until that body is adopted and transformed and made glorious. Your adoption is not complete until it includes the body. So, instead of our looking inside ourselves to uh, know God, to look somewhere within us so that we find that part of us where God dwells. And that tends to, and that tends to be a lot of so-called Christian thinking, that God dwells in the spirit part, this, and it's isolated and separated from the old ugly physical part of us. 
And if you really want to find God, you go inside. No, it's between our whole self, body and soul, and God. He's gloriously external to us so that we can have him and embrace him and know him and speak with him and he with us. That's the glory of our being made body, soul. The body, soul, whole, our whole self toward God. How wonderful that is. Knowing that he loves us body, so that knowing that he even has taken upon himself body, soul. That's how he is not staying separate from this world, but entering into this world in the most intimate way. And so we are a part of this world, a part of this creation, and we're not trying to escape from this world. We're trying, seeking to this world to be transformed in the end so that it will become a new creation. Not trying to do away with this world or ignore this world. So when the psalmist says the earth is the Lord's in Psalm 24, it means two things. The earth is not God and it is not ours. Okay, It's not God to be worshipped and it's not ours. It belongs to him. And so this makes us as his image bearers servant kings in this world. Image is being made in his image means that we are a part of creation, but we are also the rulers of creation under God. We have this intimate, wonderful relationship with creation because we are a part of the creation. And yet, we, unlike the rest of the creation, have been made in relationship to this God so that we, in union and communion with Him, in relationship with Him, would lead and direct His creation. Okay, point one then, that we are whole Secondly, we are relational. We are <clears throat> relational. It's very interesting that God speaks us into existence, right? Speaks us into existence. You might say he says us into existence. We don't exist except we have been spoken or spoken to. So right in your creation, a relationship has defined us. We exist because we are addressed by God. Theologian Jensen writes, If we exist because we are addressed by God, and if we have our specific identity as those who respond to God, then we do not possess ourselves. Our first response, God speaks to us and we say, Here I am. And we not only say, Here I am to God, But because we are relational by nature, we say to one another, here I am. Isn't that beautiful? We say, here I am to God because he addresses us. We have no meaning, we have no existence except that he spoke us into existence. So his word precedes us, his address precedes us, it defines us. We are in relationship to God and we're in relationship to everything and everyone around us. So this is a dramatic narrative that defines our existence as necessarily, inerrantly, covenantal and relational. We're fully engaged with God from the beginning and fully engaged with each other and fully engaged with non-human creation. We're not going deeper and deeper within ourselves because we are 
covenantal because we're made in the image of God and that means we're relational. It draws us outwardly where we find ourselves responsible to God, to our neighbors, to the creation. That's who you are. That's your royalty. (laughs) That you are made for relationship. You are in covenant with God, in covenant with others, in covenant with His creation. So, we are not only are we whole, we are covenantal or relational. This defines what we are. So that this, uh, we, we do not possess ourselves. We're saying to God and our neighbor, here I am. And so there is this inerrant relational outward going character of human existence rather than the introspective quest for inner light. Right? No. The inward quest for inner light to find is to find our meaning and our beauty and our glory in relationship as we spend ourselves, as we say to this world, to one another, to God, here I am, here I am. That's your royalty. That's your kingship. That's your image of God. So, because we're whole, body, soul, because we're in relationship. We are royal. We are royal. It's interesting that in the uh, Mesopotamian <clears throat> Canaanite uh, world, the, the one king of the whole of the you know, society or the city or whatever, he was called the image of God. Now, what'd that make everybody else? Peons, you know, <laughs> lowly, non-like God people. But he was your connection with God. He, he was the representation to you of God. He was, in a sense, how you got to God. And because he's the most exalted one on earth, the most like God, that's why he would be worshipped. His image would be everywhere. And you bow down and worship this one who is Lord and God. Well, writer of Genesis, I think is Moses, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that every one of you are made in the image of God. Every one of you is the king in this world made like God, to rule like God under God's glory. That's what that means that he says he made them in the likeness of God. That was only reserved for the kings, but now we all are made royalty. So this is a royal investiture, and we are servant sons of this God. We belong to him, called the sons of God. And the naming of sons was part of treaty making, to, to name them the sons of the king. And, you know, we, we've done that uh, the way we uh, say, uh, have certain names reformed that way, right? Eric's son, Robert's son, David's son, William's son, Johnson, and the most famous Methuselah's son. Um, anyway, you may not have heard that one, but, um, so we now though are called God's son. 
I'm wonderful. That's your name. God's son. God's son. God's son. <laughs> and this means that you're royalty because you belong to him. You are like him. You are made in his image. There is a royal investiture. And so it's not a pyramid with the king is the lone gateway to God. We all are in his image. We all are enabled to have fellowship with him and to be covenantally related uh, in relationship to him. And so when you see the way creation is laid out in Genesis 1, it's interesting how it's structured because... First of all, you have the realms laid out in days one, two, and three. And then you have the rulers of the realms laid out in days four, five, and six. And so the first day uh, is light and dark. And then the fourth day, which corresponds to that, got your math going, right? One and four, um, is the sun and the moon to rule. And they're called the rulers. And that's why the imagery in Scripture, when the sun will be darkened and the moon will be darkened, doesn't mean literally that will happen. It's, it's a picture of rule being destroyed in the earth because they represent rule. They represent, represent kingship. And so then you've got the water and the air formed in the second day, birds and fish, fifth day. Then you've got the water and dry land, animals and people. Okay. Well, the idea is that the realms are, are laid out, then the rulers of the realms are laid out, and it's like a parade of glory being laid out, and it all ushers into the Sabbath rest of God. And the idea is that we, being made in the image of God, have now as our pattern bringing creation to its final Sabbath rest, its final transformation. And originally, uh, as it appears, this was what Adam and Eve were to do, to subdue the earth, to spread through the earth the glory of God, to make the whole earth a glorious garden city. And at some point, we don't know, know how long it would have been or what would have happened if they had not fallen, then this would be all ushered into the new creation. Kind of like the caterpillar throughout our whole history and then would finally enter into the butterfly. Ah, enter sin into the world. And we no longer were going to enter into that final stage, right? We no longer are going to usher this realm uh, for the glory of God. We begin to tyrannize Others, We begin to tyrannize this creation. We begin to use it for our own ends against the glory of God. And so we look pretty pathetic because now we don't have the character of our God. We don't have the royalty of our God. Even though we, there's a royalty about us to rule, look why we rule and what we rule for. Uh, I've been reading a bit more history in the last months than uh, I usually do. And I'm just struck that all there is is suffering. War after war after war of suffering. Horrible things that have gone on forever in this, this world. There's our rule. There's our image of God. And so Adam's responsibility was to lead creation into God's everlasting, everlasting shalom. So that... 
we are supposed to be oriented toward this future. But as interestingly, this is in Psalm 8, the psalmist talks about how glorious it is that you have made man a little lower than the angel and he put everything under his feet. So it's a, it's a glorious hymn that uh, we've talked about this before, but it looks back to Genesis 1 saying, it's amazing what you did for man, that you made him glorious and you put all things under his feet, as it says in Genesis 1. It doesn't say that Genesis 1 part, but that's what he's reflecting on. Okay, So Genesis 1, Psalm 8. Then you get to Hebrews 2 and the writer in Hebrews reflects back on Psalm 8. And he says, yeah, everything's under our feet, but not really because we're all subject to death. How do you rule over a realm when you just die and become dust in it? Right? That doesn't seem like you're ruling everything for real, ultimately, in every way. In, in that way, you're subject to the powers of this world, and these, this world overcomes you. You're not the king of this world. You're the, you're the terrible subject, and you end up just dust in this world. That's the reflection. Not that this isn't true, Psalm 8 It is. It's so glorious that things are under us, but yet he's reflecting on the fact that they're not really, it's not really that way ultimately. But then he says, it has been restored in Jesus Christ. You can read about that sometime in Hebrews 2. He has come as the true royal son, which Adam did not prove to be, And which Israel itself did not prove to be because she was to hold forth the glory of God. She didn't do that. And so Jesus, the Son of God, comes as the true Adam, as the true Israel, and fulfills everything, obeys God perfectly, dies for our sin, obeys God so beautifully and perfectly, even in His giving Himself, so perfectly reflecting the Father's love by loving us to the end, even to death itself. So perfectly reflected the Father's servant heart that He would serve even to the point of death. Therefore, He was raised and set over the world. Now, you can't think that that's the first time then that the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, began to rule because He's the eternal God who's always ruled. It's a statement about Him as Messiah, as our representative, as a human being who has now been given true exaltation over the earth. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Now it's happened. Humanity is back on the throne Humanity has gotten its royalty back. That's why Psalm 2 is so important. Because it's, when it talks about this day I've begotten thee, that's quoted always in the New Testament as the resurrection. Here's the resurrection. Ask of the nations and I will give them to you. The royal son, the representative of the new royal humanity is offered the nations. And then in Matthew 28, he says, all authority is given me in heaven and earth. The new Adam, the new king, the restored royal human being who is God and man in one. He now says, all authority is given to me. Go and make disciples of the nations. And so... 
our responsibility to lead creation, to shepherd creation, which was Adam's responsibility, to its final day, to the new creation, to be a part of that means by which God's glory would be made known on the earth and used for His purposes until the final day when Jesus would come and restore all things. That's now a part of the gospel, you see. It's a part of living out the gospel in everyday life, a part of proclaiming this gospel in the world. And Jesus has shown us that the one who rules is the one who serves. He says there in Mark 10, he uses the term son of man. Son of man is taken from Daniel chapter 7, where it says, I saw one like the son of man to whom was given all authority and thrones forever and a kingdom that endures forever. And Jesus liked that name. He used that name. Yeah, it referred in part to his humanity, but it was a glorious name. It's a regal, kingly name. And I love when he uses it in this passage. He says, even the Son of Man, the one's going to receive all glory in heaven and earth, even the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve. You little pitchquits that are arguing on who's going to be first, you know, that was the context, you know. Even the Son of Man, as God is showing himself that he's the great God who serves his people, who lays down his life for his people. And so, as, um, as Michael Horton in his systematic theology talks about the putting on of Christ, it's mentioned in uh, Romans 13, 14 and Galatians 3, or putting on the new self in, in Ephesians and Colossians, um, even in 1 Corinthians 15 where it says this perishable must put on the imperishable, that term. It's royal investiture. To put on Christ is to put on your royalty again. Because it's to put on the character as those passages indicate. It's to begin to put on the character of Christ. As Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, We beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. So bearing His image, becoming royalty, he says this occurs by the Spirit. And so to be human is to be called by God to direct the whole creation to its appointed goal. And in this case, it's to be a part of His royal troop that is bringing the good news of the gospel and living out that gospel in everyday life. That's the true royalty in this world. And I want to close by talking just a bit about the Spirit. You know, the Spirit, uh, the glory cloud on Sinai and the glory cloud that followed them in the day and the, the cloud of fire by night uh, that filled the tabernacle, that filled the temple... And the glory cloud that came upon Christ when he was transfigured on the mountain and became, his, his clothes became like lightning and, and, and he became just like light personified. This glory cloud came upon the disciples in the upper room and it was described like tongues of fire. It's the glory cloud of the Spirit come upon the church to, to make the church itself the temple of God. 
And we read these wonderful words in Isaiah 4 as he predicts and, and, and he describes it in Old Testament terms, but he's talking about what happens in the New Covenant, what happens to us, what has happened to us. The Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night for over all the glory there will be a canopy. Well, that never literally happened. It's happened to us because the glory cloud has come upon us. The glory is upon us. We have the Spirit of God because we are His royalty, bringing the good news to this world. And so Isaiah says in Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. We're the royal ones by God's grace, so that Jesus is able to say we are the light of the world that we must let them see our good deeds so that they will glorify our Father who is in heaven. And part of that is in that passage is that we suffer. We so sacrifice ourselves for the world that we are an image of Jesus to the world. That's what it is to be royalty and and not to participate. Not to be a part of the thinking about the world, praying for the world, being passionate about the world. And brothers and sisters, I'm speaking to myself, okay? I, I, I must grow greatly in this. Then we're just choosing that we're just going to be paupers. We're going to be little peasants. We're going to be into the little eddies of the stream. We're not going to be a part of anything important in this world. Or are we going to be royalty? Royalty, image of God. I close with this most beautiful passage in First Peter. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let us pray. Oh Lord, bless us. Use, Lord, these pages to help us pray, to help us act, help us do different things than we've been doing. Think different things. Pray different things, Lord. We pray. I thank you for this church that is mission-minded in so many ways. I thank you for the mission trips that are sponsored every week, for the great missions variety show that we have where so much money is raised. People are so generous so many people have gone on these trips. So many people right now are involved in different ministries in the city and other places. Lord, I thank you and praise your great name that your glory is seen among these people. Your glory is seen in what Rick is doing, what the prison ministry is doing, what is happening with Pregnancy Lifeline. Your glory is seen as people sacrifice time and money and give themselves away like Jesus did. And there's your glory. There's royalty. There is kingly activity. 
Bless us and encourage us that all the more, Lord, we'll be liberated for this. To do it not under constraint so much as do it because of our love. Our love for Jesus. Our love for others. Our joy in you, Lord. Make it doxological, we pray. Make us, Lord, constantly to be filled with how exalted you are. How strong you are, how good you are, how kind, how wise. Help us to enter into the sheer wonderful enjoyment of you, Lord, so that as we give ourselves away to others, it will be buoyed and strengthened and equipped and nourished by our praises, by our enjoyment of God. Oh, Lord, may we indeed put on Christ. May we... Have this royal investiture, Lord, which you have restored to us. You've given us your spirit. You've made us uh, amazingly glorious. That's what Paul says. We're being transformed from glory to glory. How could it be? And yet the mighty God has taken it to make us his workmanship. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain. Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?